This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. Democracy, a term that resonates with notions of freedom, participation and equality, lies at the heart of many political systems worldwide, at least in concept. But what does it actually mean? For many, democracy equals elections and the ability to cast a vote once every however many years. Others might consider that a problematic and even reductive way of defining democracy. So what exactly is it and what needs to be done to make Malaysia a more democratic nation? Joining me in conversation today is Ui Kokin, is the executive director of Bursay. He's also the editor of the book titled Making Democracy Work, Institutional Reforms for Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Kokin. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dashan, uh, for having me on the show. Looking forward to chat on the topic today. So I want to start this topic, this show, with a big picture philosophical question. What does democracy mean to you? Well, I guess uh, in the simplest terms, it means people power, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people power in the form of participation, in the form of expression, in the form of our ability to determine our own fate, so to speak. So, uh, it, you know, it could mean taking it to the streets to air our grievances as a legitimate form of reclaiming the public space and express our opinions. It could also mean the freedom of association. Who do we want to associate with and who do you want to organize and so on. Um, it means the freedom and ability to change uh, who governs us. If we are not happy with so-and-so uh, -so parties or political leaders, we have the ability to change that. So that's a form of accountability um, there and also transparency as well. I'm trained in the political science mm -hmm. discipline. John Locke basically said that politics is the continuation of war through peaceful means. Right. And I think that's quite <laughs> a memorable quote. You know, uh, politics is the way we resolve conflict, um, power sharing in a peaceful, non-military way, hopefully. Yep. And there's also another definition that talks about politics in the sense of uh, who determines who gets what, when, and where, and how much. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple definition of politics and, and democracy, right? So democracy is one form of the way that you deal with politics or you manage politics, uh, the distribution of power, and so on. I think that gets to, you know, the heart of the matter here. So one way I like to look at it is that, um, especially when we talk about elections, right? Democracy doesn't equal to elections, right? Elections with competing political parties, as we practice it here in Malaysia and many other countries around the world, is just one aspect of democracy and one method of exercising our democratic rights. Ultimately, democracy, like you said, Kokin, is about the will of the people. That is the most important aspect. And so, just to give two <laughs> polar opposite examples, right? A country with no elections but the will of the people is consistently taken into account in a meaningful way, let's say via referendums, could be considered significantly more democratic than a country with elections, but all the polit political parties are completely bought off by billionaires and business elite, so much so that they dictate the policies and the laws that govern the country rather than the people. 
I'm not saying it's always one, it can only be one of one or the other, right? That It's not that. I'm just giving an example um, because it's definitely not one or the other. But I think it's important to think about democracy in a more nuanced way. Uh, how do you look at it? Yeah, uh, election is definitely an integral part of democracy uh, and popular will. Mm-hmm. You know, without election, how can you... Uh, assert popular will because we are not Athens, Greek, uh, Greece anymore, like in a, where you can have direct democracy. How, how can you get a 3 million people to decide uh, on, on a particular matter? Let, uh, you know, even a place to eat, 10 people <laughs> deciding is so hard, let alone, let's say, 10 million people decide who gets to lead us and so on. So direct democracy is... I think it's interesting, and it's an interesting idea, direct democracy. Uh, if you look at Occupy Wall Street, this is what they were trying to practice at the time uh, in the 2010s. Um, but like it or not, representative democracy is here to stay. Absolutely. Uh, at least for the foreseeable future. And indirect democracy, we are representative democracy, which means you know indirect democracy, in which you elect a group of people um, to to represent you, so to speak, at the uh, national or state assemblies, the legislature, where the lawmaking happens or uh, take over the executive power as well uh, through presidential elections. So there there are various ways of designing the electoral systems. Uh, Bursay has been advocating for electoral reforms for more than 15 years. It's a long journey. And I believe that we have, you know, through the support of mass people, I think we have raised enough public awareness of how this is so important, why this is so important uh, for our democracy. And I think we managed to push for some changes um, and people do uh, appreciate the value of elections more. But I do want to get to your comparison about the the two ends that you you mentioned, the the country that you might have in mind, for example, China. China, you can't change the CCP in power for now, right? There's no election to determine whether CCP should be election or not. But at the local level, there's actually a lot of accountability going on at the local level, uh, local government in China. Uh, some may argue that even local democracy in China is more vibrant than certain countries which do have elections and so on. But the ability to you know elect your own government, to have a say and so on, is done through the mechanism of elections, but it does not necessarily stay there. So it's a question of how you pick the best out of both systems, or more than one, more than two systems actually, and basically distribute which one that can empower uh, people participation and so on. Now, you brought up China as an example. On the other side, there is, let's say, the United States, for example, which is often looked at as this bastion of democracy um, and freedom and you know it's one of those countries where every few years you have the switching of political parties um, that govern you know sometimes the republican wins sometimes the democrats wins and and so people often look at that as you know this changing of parties as wow this is democracy you know it's this bastion of democracy but the fact of the matter is over the past few decades especially when we look at it today both major act, big player parties in the US, Democrats and the Republicans, are bought by billionaires. Their political funding act is not functioning properly. Now, a real world, like, like on the ground example is, let's say, gun violence in the US, which is now just amping up. But there's no political will at all to solve this problem. And the reason is because the NRA, which is the National Rifle Association, basically they are pro-guns, 
has pumped millions and millions of dollars into the political system, into the pockets of politicians. And so there is no interest by the political class to ban guns. So that's the problem of elite capture, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, you have some actors who are so influential in the political system such that they become veto players. By veto, I mean their approval or rejection of a certain policy can have you know, major consequences, even though they are not elected. So, for example, the NRA would have quite a significant influence in the uh, Republican Party, a moderate Republican Party, but also certain wings of the Democratic Party. Right. Uh, in Malaysia, we may or mean we may have some actors who are not elected who have exert influence on both aisles of the political spectrum. And it is a problem, I think, at least in the United States, they have some form of political financing regulation. We don't have it in Malaysia. We don't have it yet. It has been spoken about for, like, I think, more than 10 years, but the legislation has not been enacted. And that is why uh, per se ideas um, and the APPG, which is the all-party parliamentary group in Malaysia, chaired by YB Wong Chen, has been pushing hard uh, for a political financing bill that will introduce at least some form of regulation to the uh, because we need to know this, the people need to know this, we need to regulate the movement of money in and out of politics. Now, this is not to say you can't donate anymore or we'll disclose yeah. every donor, like Tin Milo, that's <laughs> not practical. Lah. Right. So there are ways to design it in a way that is healthy, doesn't penalize the donors, but increase transparency so that we know that, okay, it's not going to be an elite capture anymore. Uh, let's uh, make it more, you know, public distribution. Yeah, there's, there's many components to the bill. Uh, as, as we are speaking, I'm sure there are, we, we are having a meeting in this parliament session. We also talk about public funding in which like in Indonesia and in Germany, the state itself actually, through your vote, for example, you vote for party A, mm-hmm. then the party A will get about, let's say, five ringgit uh, each year based on per vote value. Right. So this is public funding, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, this. It's not you know, saying, oh, give money to political parties, what for, and so on. It is really to ensure healthy competition, sustainability of the institutions of the political parties, and so that they are less dependent on private money. Private money, like you mentioned, because otherwise there's no regulation, no money from the public spectrum, so they will usually go to the big businesses for money. So so we want to limit that influence. So with all of that in mind, how would you describe the state of democracy in Malaysia right now? I think there's plenty of political opportunities to Mm -hmm. enact reforms. And uh, whether it's civil society actors or progressive politicians interested in change, we should seize the political opponents to enact some reforms right now. And I think the lessons from the past suggest that, you know, we cannot be too complacent or there'll be more time, there'll be more three, four years. Um, The urgency to push and implement reform needs to be there. Um, Having said that, I think the democracy, our democracy at the moment is also, you know, that is still in a state that is a little bit fragile. Mm -hmm. Now, there may not be the fair assessment because we do have parliamentary democracy for like 60 years, plus minus, you know, the emergency and so on. 
But in the past two to three years alone, we see, you know, threats to our parliamentary democracy, whether it's the suspension of parliament, uh, emergency con- uh, declaration concentrating the hands of, of the, the power in the hands of the prime minister, the political instability, because political instability and uncertainty, I'm sure if enough, many of your listeners are aware of global history and so on, usually periods of periods of strong men, periods of authoritarian rule is preceded by political uncertainties. You look at Germany before uh, the Nazis come to power. Um, you look at the state of the Republican Party before Donald Trump. So usually there's a you know political uncertainty, instability, and then the strong man come and say, you know right. what, so messy, give power to me, I'll settle it. Mm-hmm. And I feel there is a risk of that uh, in Malaysia. And uh, don't forget in the past general elections, although now we have the unity government, you know, there's still a little bit of the euphoria state, so to speak, right? Uh, among some segments of the population and also among the politicians, a lot of first-time MPs and first-time ministers. But don't forget that it was a close result. It's a close chef, so to speak. And, you know, I don't have, I'm not saying this in, in partisan sense, in the sense of, oh, this party come very close to winning, right, or right. we are lucky and so on. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the way the campaign was conducted, the sheer polarization, which is a threat to democracy worldwide, yeah? Right. We have seen a, you know, an increase in political polarization in ways that are sadly uh, divided among any religious lines. So I'm sure many people have, you know, talked about the green wave, so to speak, the rising uh, political Islam and so on. And it's actually not unique to Malaysia. Uh, we have seen elsewhere in India, in uh, Myanmar, um the the threat of ethno-religious nationalism so to speak mm-hmm. the marriage of the ethnic and also the religious dimension in and create a form of a an unkind almost malevolent form of nationalism so to speak so you are seeing certain monks in uh, Yama who are like completely right when you would think that you know Buddhism, preach peace all the time, non-violence, but here you have the monk that preach violence. It's like oxymoron. Right, in India, right? Like the yeah, BJP yeah. is currently in power. They are a Hindu nationalist party and mm-hmm. they are oppressing, there's a lot of oppression going on towards Muslims in India. Now I'm wondering, Kokin, because I think you bring up something very important um, about how democracy is in decline or is under threat. And it's not just a Malaysian problem, it, it it's all over the world. Um, you are seeing this this rise of right-wing populism. You talked about strong men like Trump. Do you think one of the reasons could be that over the past four decades, um, especially when we look at from a global perspective, we are talking about the likes of Thatcher, Reagan, maybe from a local perspective, Amahade, you know, basically people who embrace and perpetuate neoliberal politics. Um, and they have just given so much power to private companies. However, in response, the so-called progressives or the center-left parties have just accepted the system, the capitalist system as is, and taken a technocratic approach to running the economy, which hasn't actually addressed important issues surrounding inequality. So there's very little class consciousness, very little class solidarity. So when people are suffering and insecure, 
and the centre-left parties aren't providing transformative or radical solutions, then it's easy for, you know, these ethno-nationalist parties, like you said, to swoop in and say, you know why you're poor and angry? Because it's the immigrants' fault. Because it's this race fault. It's that race fault. What do you think of this? I do want to mention that, you know, when I say the state of democracy is fragile mm-hmm. at the moment, um, but there is room for political opportunity mm-hmm. to enact reforms. Uh, I mean to say that the point I want to drive home basically is that we should seize the opportunity now to basically solidify the political institutions in this country uh, to enact progressive reforms for long term that will not be easily undone in the future. Right. And whether this party comes to government, this party is in the government uh, opposition, the rule of the games remain democratic mm-hmm. uh, empowering the people so you know that's why it is important i feel this is the main thing that i think a lot of civil society including Perse, is uh, trying to push for okay right-wing populism and the causes i think you're right to point out that there is a dimension of economic grievance whether it's the us or here right recall during the 2016 presidential election in the us Hillary clinton was quite viral uh, in saying that, you know, the 48% of Trump voters are deplorables. Yeah. And and that become, so the Trump supporter just wow, take that line mm-hmm. and make it viral and saying, oh, she looked, she looked down on a so right. condescending, so to speak. Whereas a lot of Trump voters could be just, you know, yeah, you're right, you know, like in the Rust Belt states, they... Uh, economy dah lembab, kilang dah tutup. Um, so they don't have good jobs like in the past anymore. So that is why Trump say make America great again. Like right. Saying that uh, the again yeah, part is important, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, restoring glory to the good old days, so to speak. Um, whether it's blaming immigrants or saying the factory has moved to China because your leaders kowtow to the other people and so on. So the, the whole neoliberal thing it's there, right? The logic is there. Even in Malaysia, sometimes we are surprised why people in the East Malaysia vote a certain way and then, you know, we say nasty things about them. Right. We have assumptions and so on. Um, maybe we just don't know about enough about the local context and the economic conditions there, to be fair, right? Having said that, I'm not the... I'm not completely on the economy material side of things. I'm sympathetic to that. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's not an insignificant factor there. But I do think that sometimes it's not completely about economics. You can't solve everything in economics. Some people are just ideologically driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's ideological indoctrination even from the young age until now. And it's not something that's easily undone. When you say that, you know, certain citizens are second class, that or you should be grateful that you are even here. Like, you know, right. it's like that. It's not, and it's not necessarily, it could be an economic thing, but it's not necessarily an economic thing. And you'll be surprised, like, mm-hmm. I worked in think tanks before, we have run surveys, we have do research, that some of the people who held these kind of sentiments are actually upper class. All right. They're doing well. They're living in cities, capital but they have these strong ethno-religious sentiments and they quite nasty views about people that are not from their own kind. Okay, I think we can do an entire podcast on this down the road, but we got to go for a break and also move this conversation along. So uh, to close this part off, I will just say this to clarify. Um, I'm not saying that poor people or, or the or the less privileged people, people lower on the socioeconomic ladder, 
I don't think for a second that they come up with the narratives. Um, I'm actually not surprised by what you said about how a lot of the times the people saying the most right-wing things can be upper class. In fact, I, that's exactly what I think. The right-wing elite and the upper class spread, um, you know, take advantage of people's economic insecurities by spreading and playing up these narratives. And I think that's the problem. Anyway, we got to go for a quick break. On the show with me today is Ui Kok Hin. He's the executive director of Bursay. We continue this discussion on democracy after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan. And on the show with me today is Ui Kok Hin. He's the executive director of Bursay. And we're having a conversation about democracy. So, Kokin, when we look at reforms or changes needed to ensure a more inclusive and representative democracy in Malaysia, what reforms do you think we need? Perhaps you can talk about key institutional reforms first. Yes, so institutional reforms. Good timing because, yeah, Bursi, as you just, we were trying to speak to the Parliamentary Special Select Committee. Mm-hmm. on uh, human rights elections and institutional reform. So we have 10 proposals that we think are very doable in the short run, right? So these are kind of low-hanging fruit, so to speak, right? So for elections, we suggest, you know, expansion of voting rights for our region or our state voters. We suggest amending the Election Offences Act so that we can empower the Election Commission to enforce some... Um, election offences because now the penalties are quite low and the election commission let the uh, thief, so to speak, to enforce uh, some behaviour punishment, right? Um, we also call for the strengthening of our parliament by giving them more autonomy. So this is, uh, again, this is not something that is new. It has been years of advocacy and so on, not just by Bursi, but by groups like Reform, by... Um, you know, ideas by CSO partners uh, and also experts such as uh, Maha Balakrishnan. Hmm. I'm sure you might have her on the show previously. Right. So how to give greater autonomy to parliament by ensuring separation of power, right? Parliament is legislative, executive is, uh, you know, the prime minister and so on. Mm-hmm. So how do we give greater autonomy to parliament? Well, first of all, you need to give them administrative and financial independence. If you get your money from the PM's department, then, you know, of course, they'll be, they have some say, right, in how mm-hmm. it's run, the order of business and so on. So shadow cabinet recognition for the opposition. Um, you know, sometimes when we say all these people say, oh, why you want to give money to the opposition? You have to remember, uh, any party can be in opposition and government nowadays. Right. <laughs> I think Absolutely. all of them have taken turns like, to be in government opposition. <laughs> so <laughs> we want to strengthen the rules of the game, the institutions of opposition and the uh, backbenchers and so on. Um, and I think when public funds are given to, you know, let's say shadow cabinet minister. So for example, you have education minister and you have shadow education minister, like in the UK. I think we will see a more professional and healthy competition among the coalitions here. Because now when you are shadow education minister, you cannot just give rhetoric on race and religion anymore. You have to show you do the homework. Lah. <laughs> Talk about education issue. What right. is the major problem? What is your solution as the alternative government in waiting, so to speak? 
So these are the things that we want to see in Malaysia, more mature policy-based competition rather than all this empty rhetoric, grandstanding, shouting in parliament and so on. Um, I think there are a couple more items that are important, repeal, amend, uh, repressive and draconian laws that have been used against political dissidents and activists in the past. This is important uh, because you can say that, you know, oh, there's a moratorium now, we are not using it now. Okay, yes, now, but what about later? You, you have to dismantle all these draconian tools before it can be abused again. Uh, of course, some people will justify that. Oh, there's a lot of um, hateful speech in Malaysia if we don't have Sediction Act, SOSMA and so on. Well, there are ways to regulate against terrorism. There are ways against to regulate hate speech without having such a um, blanket legislation that can basically arrest political dissidents for the flimsiest right. of, uh, you know, dissenting views. Absolutely. I think it's also important for us to highlight um, that just because we have some sort of an electoral system that we can vote, which is important, doesn't mean it's functioning well. So Malaysia uses a first-past-the-post system. Do you think this is an adequate system, especially when we're talking about democracy in terms of will of the people? So I was just reading this new book called Electoral Reform and Democracy in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. It's edited by Helen Ting and Donald Horowitz. And I think it's good that we actually talk more about this kind of system, electoral reform, because we need to resuscitate the conversation of electoral reform. It has been in the state of inertia since the Electoral Reform Committee uh, submitted their report to the Prime Minister. So for context, for two almost two years, uh, the Electoral Reform Committee was formed uh, by the then Prime Minister Tun Dr. Mahathir and they take about one to two years to do a lot of public consultation, come up with a major recommendation. They have 49 recommendations, I think. But the report has been classified OSA. Uh, I don't know why. They should declassify it and uh, resuscitate the conversation of electoral reforms. Mm-hmm. I think we need to have more conversation on that. Um, specifically on the subject of first past the post versus proportional representation, that is the, just the basic of the debate. There are actually ways that you can marriage the two, pick and design the system. Um, for example, proportional... Okay, so for those listeners who are not familiar, first past the post is a majoritarian system. So, takisala mm-hmm. kaum by majority, 10 undi ke, 10 ribu undi ke, it's just one seat anyway. Winner takes all. Winner takes all. Mm-hmm. Uh, proportional representation is like, okay, if you get 30% of the vote, you get 30% of the seat. Right. So, no vote is wasted there, right? Mm-hmm. There are pros and cons, and each system, uh, they are the design and line line. There's, there's a lot of subset of each. Right. Uh, no, we're not going to that now, but yeah. I just want to say that there are various ways that you can design the electoral system, and we don't have to stick to it now. Um, I'm sure we can talk about this in another episode. Do Delineation, a- gerrymandering, malapportionment. These are some of the big problems that are still embedded in our first-past-the-post system. I'm not saying it's because of first-past-the-post specifically, but it goes along with it, and that's why it can't be soft yet lah, at the moment. I just want to mention that even if we want to retain first-past-the-post system, there is a different way of doing it, such as in Australia, alternative voting, rank, rank voting. So, mm-hmm. like, you, you, you are not just choosing one candidate, but you put your preference. Number one, two, three, four. Okay, I like PKR candidate, PKR candidate number one. Number two candidate is, I don't know, AMNO or DAP. Number three, pass, for example. So if the first one, memang clearly your first choice is not going to win, then they will take into account your second vote. 
So that's an interesting alternative uh, a rank voting system. A proportional representation, we also have mixed. So for example, maybe you can have a portion of your parliament be elected on uh, first basha portion, another portion elected on PR, proportional representation. Mm-hmm. So it's party-based like, proportional representation. So uh, that will ensure, and we actually, Berse, uh, with Pro- Professor Dr. Wang Chinha, we actually tried to work with the Penang and Selangor state governments before, in which we propose to have a greater degree of women re- representation in the state assembly through a sort of proportional representation each quota. So, for example, if you have, if you want to have thirty percent women representation, say twenty out of fifty lah, but mm-hmm. in the election only fifteen women are elected. So five more women, right, that you need, and you can choose this based on a sort of proportional basis. So if party A wins twenty percent of the seat. Then okay, maybe get one or two of the five seats. You get what I mean, right? Right. So yeah. There is ways that you can play around with it. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, you know one another thing about first past the post is it tends to sort of encourage antagonistic sort of rhetoric between parties, right? Because it is winner takes all. So all you have, you instead of convincing why you are good, all you need to do is put the fear of God into the people that the other party is the biggest enemy of your life. And and so, because y- you see this among whether, it's not just past, right, this whole anti-DAP within the Malaysian context, even among Pakatan, if you just go and ask a random person, why do you vote for Pakatan? They'll say, oh, because I hate BN, for example. Mm-hmm. right? You A lot of times negative it's about, it's negative campaigning. Whereas in, in terms of, Let's say if it's a proportional, doesn't mean like you said there are weaknesses with all systems. I think parties would be encouraged to talk about why they are good instead of why the other person is is bad. I think that's one element there as well. Now I also want to talk to you about grassroots movement and community organizing, organizing because like you repeatedly talked about, democracy is about will of the people. So what role can grassroots movements, organizing play in promoting democratic values and principles in Malaysia? Because I think this is an aspect that is there's still a lot of gaps as far as the Malaysian political psyche goes. Yeah. Grassroots movement is a form of direct democracy, I think, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because it is where you really get into the ground and organize people of your like-minded for, the, for a cause. Um... It is important, definitely, because you need to hold the political elites accountable. Otherwise, with no pressure from the grassroots, they may lack the sense of urgency. They'll be like, okay, we just got elected. Let's chill for a while. Right. Wait for three years. One year before election, baru I buat kerja, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think there's the, there's the importance of grassroots movement in the form of airing your collective grievance and also pressuring the political elites. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, not all grassroots movements are progressive. Right. So there's something you have to keep in mind. Some grassroots movements are conservative and they may be bigger in size. So there's also the question of balance. I mean, it's not a good versus evil question right. anymore. Right, absolutely. It's a question of, okay, if you really care for a cause, let's organize, let's mobilize, Let's unite and work mm-hmm. on that cause. So for example, if you're interested in parliamentary reform, democracy, uh, electoral reforms, okay? Because if you don't organize, rest assured someone else will organize and they will occupy the space. And the politician be like, oh, we keep hearing from this group that this is bad, so we should do this. 
and by group i mean it could be like right wing group atau it could be businesses and so on right so if you don't organize for the course that you want yeah that that's all the people that they so basically they are elite capture everywhere lah okay mm-hmm. so state level federal level local level so if you don't organize you don't take part in grassroots movement and so on it's not that you macam okay lah i don't care anymore then okay let you are letting them win right basically that's what i'm saying right and on that same note what would you say is the importance of dissent and or industrial and labor strikes in a properly functioning democracy dissent is important in sense of accountability right mm-hmm. if everyone just sings kumbaya and dance <laughs> and happy all the time you know i mean who who is going to air the unpopular opinion when something goes wrong or on the eve of something going wrong uh you know knowing that you'll be a disastrous policy or announcement if you say so so it is definitely important uh as you as you as you know definitely uh, industrial action has not been a you know a tool that is regularly used in malaysia right. for various reasons uh, we have a long history of you know policies that are unfriendly to labor organizing and even today uh, even until today i mean yeah when hospital cleaners were trying to gather outside of hospital to air their grievances itu pun kena kena angkutlah <laughs> um so there are hostile atmosphere to organize basically do you think there's also a mindset shift that needs to happen because i i think and this is a you know i'm i'm just talking specifically about let's say the middle class Um, where, you know, if in a hypothetical situation where, let's say, garbage collectors in of Malaysia decide to go on strike, uh, you have the sense because you get this even when when the do- hospital uh, doctors and all are saying they might go on strike, where you will have ev- people come out and say, "Oh, these people are terrible. You know, they are you know they are they are causing so much problems for me and, and so on and so forth." Rather than that solidarity, you know, with the garbage yeah. collectors for example mm-hmm. and understanding that we should join if we are the masses the 90% or the 99% yeah. of society we should join you know yeah. forces with them or at least stand in solidarity with them because their fight is our fight you know mm-hmm. against the 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 sort of um, business elite and and, and what not uh, do you think that that a mindset shift needs to happen in malaysia as well Yeah, I think you you hit the right spot there. So mm-hmm. we are no longer in the times where you know the coal mining unions. <laughs> you basically know everyone in the village, right. and you know it's the workers that are on strike are your uncles or your neighbors. So there's a sense of solidarity. Nowadays, you don't know, you don't really have a personal relation with your your garbage cleaner. Mm-hmm. The, even the security guards at your condo, how many times do you say good morning to them? Right. right? So uh, that sense that may weaken the sense of solidarity. At the same time, I think that's why it's important for union organizers, such as the you know the the one that you mentioned, Hatta Doctor Contract, and so on. You have to remember everything is a campaign. So when you want to do a strike, you have to have strategies to campaign to win the public on your side. You should expect there will be anger because. Yalah, hospital cleaner, uh, me hospital, public hospital, kita dah lah tunggu lama. Bila you nak strike, lagi lah ni tak jalan. So, you channel the anger elsewhere. You know, it's not our fault that we have been working 12 hours a day anyway for quite little pay. Especially right. if you are playing very doctors, right? Right. So, channel the grievance elsewhere. Where is the, you know, where is the anger supposed to go to? And if you do it right, 
sometimes you get a public on your side and that's what politicians care about actually right the public right. side of things right. oh man it looks just look bad like we are you know underpaying doctor and so on until they have to strike you know mm-hmm. so it's important the, the the strategies and so on Kokin, I also want to talk to you about something that is perhaps not often talked about in conversations about democracy. Because when we talk about democracy, it often tends to revolve around governments, political parties, and and so forth. To me, while this is still highly important, today, um, especially after the past um, you know, four decades um, of privatization, of neoliberalism, and, and so on and so forth, uh, the economy is centered largely in the private sector and private companies hold more and more power. Do you think it's time we start having conversations about the democratization of workplaces? That means, you know, democracy not just beyond elections in terms of political parties, but workplace elections, people voting for their CEOs, people voting for salaries, um, benefits, um, you know, people voting for whether we should have a four-day work uh, work week and, and so on and so forth within each private company, right? Do you think it is t- time we start having these conversations? Because the whole idea of democracy is also to 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 distribute powers to the, to the people. But when we go to work, the power gap is huge, right? If you're, especially if you're you know, a huge multinational company, the power gap between the CEO and and the fresh graduate or the person working in the factory, for example, is tremendous. So should we reduce these power gaps as well? Um, workplace, democracy in workplace, I mm-hmm. think you can have laws if it's possible. To, that's, that's why sometimes the government just directly interfere, providing three months maternity leave, seven right, days right. maternity leave. Even that certain employer association is not happy and so on. Um but if you're talking about single entity workplace, uh, for example, Malaysia Kini just form a union, right? The right. journalist. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'm not sure if BFM is uh, a similar conversation is taking place and so on. It varies from workplace to workplace, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be hard for government to dictate and it'd be hard for workers themselves to organize because of the sheer risk of retaliation. Right. I mean, I can just not renew your contract, you know. Right. <laughs> Why not? No, you are not. Yeah, uh, because we don't have adequate labor laws that much right. unfair dismissal and so on. Our labor law is there, but it's not adequate, I would think, for contemporary uh, working arrangements, especially precarious working on contracts, mm-hmm. whatever. And so um, at Bursi, at least, uh, we try to be, we try to walk the talk, right? So from intern to uh, our staff and so on, we try to have more democracy. We try to pay uh, an allowance equivalent to minimum wage for our interns, which is uh, is not usual in yeah, the civil sector. I yeah. think you know it's difficult. I, I can share with you because of the sustainability issues for civil society mm-hmm. NGOs like Bursay uh, and many others. I'm sure the sustainability funding is always a concern. Um, but we still try to walk the talk, lah. Basically, if we are talking about all this, you know, uh, pro labor, uh, giving power to the people and so on, we should do this in our own workplace, and that's what Berset try to do. Uh, I mean, if the public support us, then hopefully we can be more sustainable and so on. 
I, I would encourage those who are similar minded to do the same. When you are in a position of influence, try to push for the reforms that you want to see and so on. Um, and I think, you know, it's important not to have this conversation. Absolutely. Before we wrap this conversation up, Kokin, would you have a final message for us on the importance of democracy? Democracy is a long game. Sometimes it's like a marathon. If you sprint, sometimes people are tiba-tiba at a political awakening. <laughs> then they're lari laju. It's like 100 meter dash. <laughs> and then you don't get what you want. You tired already, you burn out, you give up. Right. People who, you know, status people who are pro status quo, they are there forever, right? <laughs> so it's, it's their livelihood. Right. It's, yeah, they get a kick out of it or maybe livelihood as in, you know, gaji and sebagainya lah. So, if you give up too easily, if you just like cynical and so on, it's going to benefit them, right? Um, try to come up with a mindset that is, you know, aiming for the long run, right? Don't get burned out too quickly. Get involved, grassroots movement. Oh, since we're talking about that, I will take the opportunity to mm-hmm. publicize our uh, election observers. So as you all know, the state elections is coming up. In six states, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Selangor, Negeri Sembilan, Kedah, Terengganu, Kelantan, and Penang. So we are re- recruiting election observers to monitor uh, the campaign, to monitor any potential election offenses uh, that could happen and will happen, I assure you, and to document evaluation and make reports to the authorities. That's what we are uh, you know, aiming to do. We have do this since 2013. Um, so I would really welcome, you know, any listener, members of the public to join us to conduct election monitoring. Uh, you will receive training um, and then you will help to make, you will directly be involved in help make democracy better in Malaysia. Kokin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dashan. That was Ui Kokin, is the Executive Director of Bursay. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app bfm.my, Spotify, Apple, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from, you just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.